everyone, and welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads. I am your host, Dharma Kirti, joined with some friends of mine, Ara, Kagyu, and Storm, if you all want to say hi. Hi. Hello. And we are talking today about something that uh, I think a lot of people are interested in. Um, there's been some interest uh, for a while. I've gotten some questions also on my Curious Cat uh, about Julius Evola's Doctrine of Awakening that I actually had never read before. Um, and I still only read the first part. It's a, it's a two, it's, it's written in two parts and, um, there's just a lot going on with it. And I think it's a very interesting topic, which is why I made an executive decision that we were going to discuss it for at least two weeks. Um, that is this week and next week. And, um, yeah, but before, before we got into it, I thought, um, because I know a lot of, a lot of people in this thing, got into this thing via Evola and sort of, or, or, or at least he was a foundational um, part of their intellectual and uh, political development. And so I, I thought I would turn it over to, to you guys. Cause I, I don't, I, and I wanted to say about sort of how I, um, I think there's, there's an interesting lesson in how the, like the fact that I came to Evola like this late and why and what that says. Um, but before I got like talked about that, I, I just wanted to hear what you all had to say about Evola and, and maybe also in particular this book, if you had any general thoughts. Well, you know, Evola was actually probably, I would say the first um, real reactionary writer I had ever read myself. It was um, revolt against the modern world. And, the way that that kind of inverted the entire Enlightenment project was, I think, absolutely instrumental in it, just like the overall process of of coming to my current sort of political worldview. And so I, I'm very fond of Evola. Now, I only read Doctrine of Awakening much later. I was first interested in his political writings. Um, those were the things that actually led me to Ganon. But um, that that's how I came across Evola. Yeah, um, it was pretty uh, somewhat similar for me too. I wouldn't call him the first that I came across, but um, he's very foundational for a lot of people for a good reason. And uh, DK, maybe I'll take the liberty of just giving a quick overview of Please, Evola, like we like we do sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so he was Italian, and um, he was born in 1898, and he died in 1974. One of the most uh, notable things about his life history is that he was um, hit by shrapnel from a bomb uh, during World War II and was paralyzed uh, from the waist down for the second half of his life. Yeah, he, he was. Yeah, what's that, Kagu? Oh, it's it's actually kind of an interesting story about how that happened. I, I'm not sure if. Uh, um, basically, yeah, he would. Take, yeah, you tell it. He, he, he was living in Vienna at the time in 1944, and he would take walks through the city while the Allies were bombing it. And while that was happening, just to like think about his place in the universe, because I guess that's a great thing to do. And while that was happening, he was paralyzed by shrapnel. It's just was he yeah. because it's just so connected to. Was he sexually? Was he impotent afterwards, or was it just like motion? I think he was. I mean, he never married. That's one uh -huh. thing to keep in mind. I don't know the answer to that. Um, yeah, so he he was an intellectual. He claimed to be a baron. Uh, there's some question about whether or not that's actually the case uh, by blood. Um, 
but it's possible it was true but it's one of the things people point out about him that it's it's not super well established uh his status as nobility uh and he was a very erudite person he was uh, extremely extremely well read um he was uh polyglot he wrote read and wrote uh in a number of modern and ancient languages um and so he was a real serious intellectual he was not a dabbler but uh he was a sort of a full-time thinker and writer and reader for most of his life and um he's associated it's kind of hard to go through his whole life because he wrote he wrote a ton on many different subjects but to give very broad strokes he's associated with the what's called the traditionalist school or um, perennial wisdom schools uh, that the best known um, uh, figures in that school are René Guénon, uh, the famous Frenchman who later converted to Sufism um, and lived in the rest of his life in Egypt, Ananda Kumaraswamy, um, a British educated Indian, well, and also Indian educated, and uh, Frithjof Shuan. Uh, those guys are sort of the the most influential and the sort of the leaders, I guess, if you want to call it that, of of that school of philosophy. And I think we'll have a chance to talk more about what that is specifically later. And Evola was sort of tangentially related to them, and he considered Gainon a, a great great thinker and a great writer, and was very much um, in tune with what uh, Gainon wrote. In fact, his book uh, Revolt Against the Modern World is a takeoff on the title of one of uh, Gainon's most important books, which was crisis of the modern world so and uh there's a great talk by um oh what's his name the british fellow uh why am i drawing a blank on his name uh, I, know, I know who it is but i also cannot say his name <laughs> why can't i think of his name i'm so embarrassed it's gonna come to me uh he did a wonderful talk on um evola call, uh, calling him the world's most right-wing thinker um and evola jive no, not survive the no. job. Bowden. Jonathan Bowden. Thank you, Jonathan uh, Bowden. Yes, Jonathan Bowden, and we'll put it in the in the show notes because that talk. First of all, all Bowden's talks are amazing, uh, and the one on Evola is pretty pretty good. And uh, he was uh, he was one he one famous quote by Evola was that he he didn't consider himself a fascist because fascism wasn't right wing enough, um, and he he called himself a super fascist. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and so he, he's he's a very extreme guy from that uh, perspective, um, but that's part of what makes him so refreshing. And I could ramble on some more about him, but I just wanted to – I think that's a good enough over, overview of him as a man and a person. Yeah, so, it's actually – No, no, go oh, on. It's actually like the whole super fascist thing. He was put on trial in 1951 for uh, supposedly trying to revive fascism, and that was his defense in the trial, that he wasn't a fascist. He was, in fact, super fascist. Yeah, and, 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 and so that, yeah, which gets into, I mean, there's a, like, I have a lot of thoughts just about, let's say, the historiography here, um, which is to say the... Um, so I don't think it's like gonna come. Oh, sorry, my my son is uh, giving us a little trouble. <laughs> it I don't think it would come as a surprise to say that I come from an academic background. What um, What's interesting to me is coming from an academic background. Uh, I had I had basically never even heard the name Evola before before getting in involved in this thing. And 
not only that, I can pretty much guarantee you. Um, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't. I hesitate to speak to in in two kind of absolute terms, but I can pretty much guarantee you that not only is there no one who there are no classes on Evola. There there are no university seminars on this kind of literature. And if it's ever read, if it's ever the subject of any kind of serious academic inquiry, it would it would be strictly in the context of like the rise of fascism or 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 you know, you know, basically quarantining it off as like this is bad think, these are bad people. And, you know, if we want to understand how the bad people now, you know, came to be, then maybe we want to look at like bad people from 100 years ago. Or I mean, I know he, he, as you say, he was put on trial in 1951. He was active for some decades after the Second World War. But clearly he's in many ways, you know, has a lot more in common with 1920s style Italian futurist fascist style thinking than um, than anything else. And, and so it's uh it was it was sort of jarring to to realize like because he's he's very clearly i mean just reading you know the 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 little bit that i read as you said he's clearly exceptionally well read and not just not just well read in the western canon but i mean um while i had issues some issues to some extent with some of his interpretations of like technical buddhist terms um it was never really inaccurate and it was very clear that unlike some other people particularly you know theosophists and other kind of like 19th and early 20th century people who just sort of made shit up <laughs> for the most part he was not just making stuff up he was interpreting things in a certain way but they were it was always well grounded in philology and he was citing you know serious scholars of the period that um were like the gold standard for you know serious western academic engagement with the Buddhist intellectual tradition and, and just Buddhism generally. So, uh, the, 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 it was, it was just, it was really, really telling to me and in a lot of ways that, um, that, that he is just a non-entity really from the perspective of, you know, quote unquote, serious, um, academic, uh, textual and history, his, historical studies. And, and that, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll I'll leave it there for I have a little more on that, but I was curious what y'all had to say about that, or if 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 that was your impression or or what. Yeah, I mean it makes total sense why they don't you know why he's disincluded from all of it. I mean, like you said, the only context he would come up in is uh, in it's some sort of uh, social justice based polemic against him. I, I mean, you know, that's just the way it is now. It it's pretty yeah, sad. It says more about the the modern discourse than it says about Avila. I mean, he's just. You know, when you're looking at uh, historical thinkers and stuff uh, in an academic setting, in theory, of course, uh, you're supposed to be able to just, you know, look at him as just another thinker. And, you know, even Gaynon is not not studied, not even no, in religion these, courses. Yeah, exactly. No, not at all. And and if you read Gaynon, he's exceedingly, I mean, he, he even makes Evola look like you know, kind of a dump cough or something <laughs> like G Gaynon was like. A singular intellect. I, I haven't um, read Ganon wrote... either. I mean, again, none of these names, Ganon, even like Spengler and Carlyle. I mean, and and, and Carlyle yeah. in particular, who was a huge deal in the 19th century, has just been written yeah. out of of people the don't even literature. know his name. He was one and, of the exactly. most influential. I didn't thinkers. until I encountered Moldbug. Sorry, you were going to say yep. something, Kagu. Yeah, it's it's actually interesting because I I think to myself, there's been somewhat of a renaissance of late of Carl Schmidt, who also yes. I mean is a, sort of a bad thinker. 
and yet he's been re I guess the thing is Schmidt can be repurposed by leftists as part of their political project just from a pragmatic standpoint in the same way I guess Gramsci can be repurposed by us yeah in that in in, in contrast though Evola or Ganon are so foundationally anti-leftist on like an absolutely essential level that there's nothing that they can do with them except try to push them aside and hope nobody comes across them. There's sort of like a base level of radicalness that you have to have to not be co-optable by uh, those type of left-leaning forces. And so I, I think it's interesting because their sort of takes about like, uh, I guess about class and personal quality and things like that. And even like, on the level of families and bloodlines, that type of, I guess you could say, rigid belief in an inherent hierarchy that manifests itself through the nature of people is sort of the baseline radicalness uh, to not be turned into something useful for the leftist project. That's, I think, exactly right. Or one, I, I've been, I, you know, okay, so here's like kind of part two of my spiel that, that's going to build on what you just said, Storm. So when I was reading this, it struck me that, in a, again, a way very much like, um, you know, what I understand of Carlisle or Spengler or, or even, you know, uh, Gibbon or, or kind of like these, you know, um, basically serious intellects and serious writers prior to the end of the Second World War and, and just sort of the, the kind of like solidification of the new political um, and historiographical world order that emerged afterwards. You had people who were engaged in a grand process of thinking about history, thinking about the universe, thinking about, you could say, quote unquote, metaphysics in a very kind of grand and sweeping way. Um, and and so what Evola was doing, as I understood it, and I think that, but it, it certainly seems accurate to me, is, um, or part of what he was doing, is thinking systematically, thinking in these kind of grand sweeping terms. And yeah, okay, obviously there's always exceptions, but you all, I mean, that doesn't, you know, you, you 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 can point to an exception that doesn't invalidate the kind of general point that he's trying to make. Um, and so, like, when you're looking at, uh, I, I think part of the reason why he's and and these these kind of figures are are no longer studied is because the the what's often called in 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 academic circles a um, suspicion of meta narratives. Right. When you're reading a text, you're supposed to be very suspicious about uh, any of these kind of grand sweeping claims. Any of the the idea that 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 any that any of the, anything like that is ever going to have any kind of validity. Um, and so, what you end up getting is scholarship that all it does is focus on like these these really really tiny little particularities. You know, um, you're not talking about the Aryan invasion of this. Uh, uh, Indian subcontinent you're talking about like one tribe that had one interaction at one place in time and like we can't really say anything more beyond that because we don't have to and, and it's like at a certain level particularity and a focus on detail is important but I, I really think that there's a kind of um, we get so distracted and so wrapped up in all of these all the trees that we miss we start missing the forest that, that's I guess one of the things I wanted to say I'm not sure what um, would you all think again though that right there is is the specter of of uh, deconstruction just haunting the academy. That's that's all Derrida and I think there's a couple of leftish um, modernist figures and early modernist figures who just sort of made that. I like uh, one of my favorite uh, 
guys who does lectures. He's actually, I think, a teacher at Vanderbilt, Rick Roderick. He's got a really good lecture on Baudrillard. He's got a, um, a lecture he does on the Masters of Suspicion, and he, he invokes yeah. people like Freud and Marcusa and people like that. Basically, their, their whole thing is just to be constantly suspicious so that they've turned the whole modern academic project in, in terms of thinking more like a philosopher or historian into taking stuff apart uh, rather than than what what people like Evola and Spengler were doing, which is building coherent grand narratives. It's sort of they're no longer sense making, it's sense destroying. Well I, I actually see in that too, um and I and I maybe overreading, but again this is what I, part of what I'm doing here is is like at the level of meta theory or some kind or methodology, um, you know, using methodological tools against this methodological suspicion, um, which is to say, like, I don't think that you can, uh, I don't think you can get, get out. Like what's, what's going on here. Or one of the things that's going on here is a critique of Christianity, and it's a very sneaky, very underhanded, weaselly kind of critique of Christianity. Because at a certain level, what is Christianity is kind of the this is how Girard understands it, in the least. But I think it's it's like correct as far as language can be correct is Christianity is the is the is the ultimate narrative. It is the ultimate narrative of redemption. It is the ultimate narrative of like history has a direction. It, 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 this is what gets parasitized by progressives is like the arc of history is long, but it bent towards justice. Like, yeah, you're not wrong, but not in the way that you mean. But the point is that when you're, when you're, when, when these scholars, quote unquote, are being suspicious in this particular way, what they're really doing is undermining the kind of mythopoetic or narrative foundations of Western civilization, insofar as Western civilization is Christian, insofar as it understands itself in light of this particular narrative of redemption and overcoming and, and history having a, 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 a direction in this particular way. Now, Evel is also suspicious of that narrative, but he's suspicious of it for completely different reasons, and that's really important. I mean, that, that was one of the main things I think we need to hit on, but, uh, but I'm, I'm also, again, I, I feel like I'm doing this call, but I'm curious, I mean, I don't know. Don't just tell me you agree. I'm, I'm curious. Also, Aura and Kaga, you haven't said anything in a while, but I'm, if Storm, if you have something to say too, please jump in. Yeah, well, I mean, um, Evola is suspicious of that narrative in what I would, I would say is a more productive way because it's not like we're taking this apart and snickering at it and that's it. We're, we're taking it apart uh, for some sort of productive spiritual goal and insight that matters and that is actionable and that you can use to understand things better. Whereas the other side of the project, the, the Derrida style, uh, as you, you called it sneaky, and that's, that's really funny and right. Uh, is just to take it apart, to take it apart, to to just exalt enlightenment thought, basically. The big overarching project of the traditionalist school um, had to do with the idea of a primordial metaphysical tradition, that there is um, one metaphysics, essentially, uh, at the heart of all the world's orthodox religions, and there's some uh, debate, you know, on the edges about which which traditions count as genuine traditions. Um, and you know, you can have an interesting discussion on that. I don't really want to get into it that much, but um, the idea was that you know, uh, the mountain peak is one spot, uh, and that there are different paths up the mountain. Um, 
and that it's important to stick to one path because if you keep switching paths and stuff, you're never going to make it up. So, all it it's um, it's not uh, what's the word? It's not. Uh, oh shoot, I'm not being very articulate today. Um, what what do you? Oh, it's not. Uh, syn- or thank you, thank you. Yes, yeah, yes. It's not syncretic, um, but it is. It does make one think of syncretism because they they are saying you know that these that the that there are v- validity to various traditions, and um, different of these authors emphasize uh, different aspects of this, of course. But they essentially you might say that there are you know different peoples and different times and places uh, develop different paths to this one metaphysical reality, um, which. Again, it's hard. It's it can't really be put into words very well unless you're Genon and you write four really long books about it. But um, <laughs> uh, you might want to you might say it's it's similar to theosis. Uh, it's it's unity with God. It's nirvana. It's uh, th- these kinds of concepts are are indicators of of that sort of primordial path. Um, and so, Evola, more or less, I would say agreed with this way of looking at things, although he didn't really harp on it that much. He wrote a really interesting book. Um, I think it's called The Mysteries of the Grail. I read it several years ago. It's about the Holy Grail myth and how the Holy Grail myth is a symbological uh, description of this search for the primordial truth for the metaphysical reality that underlies all of all of life all of the universe um and so he did touch on these things quite a bit um but he also taught uh, wrote a lot more about you know contemporary politics which Genon really essentially didn't touch um the reign of quantity is a great book by Genon uh, where he does talk about world war ii he 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 finished it basically right after the war i believe uh, but that's about as close as he ever got to talking about politics, and it's in a very abstract way. Genon, on the other hand, addressed things more directly, and um, he has some very pithy things to say about the United States, about the Soviet Union. And the joke about super... I am i was joking about super fascist. Evola wasn't joking. But what he meant by that was not like, I'm, I'm more Hitler than Hitler. His What he was saying is that like Hitler and Mussolini are like kind of sad sad imitations uh of of what he would really want which is a much more sort of transcendental yeah more of a kingship kind of thing and um and again to bring it back to Genon's idea of the reign of quantity what did he mean by that was that he was talking about you know the the ancient idea that you see in greece and in india and other cultures of cyclical ages of cycles right a golden age a silver age a bronze age an iron age it gets described different ways in different cultures but uh, also spangler of course talks about this um spangler was not in this school but he he did ta- have a lot of similar ideas anyway um and Genon is just talking about that quantity versus quality that that we live in a mod- in the modern age we live in an age of quantity where quantity has a quality of its own that sheer like replication of things has a sort of metaphysical reality to it it's it's sort of an an antimatter in metaphysics and it has a, the ability to destroy metaphysics um for 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 the average person um and that is where we find ourselves of course most people 
uh, don't have any lived connection to any sort of metaphysical truth. I don't know about most people, but many people at least. Anyways, I'm rambling a little bit, but I wanted to frame things a little bit to show that, you know, Evola was not just uh, trying to be hardcore or whatever, that there are some be sort of beautiful and, and serious ideas that they were uh, interested in exploring and expounding. And that relates back to what you said, DK, about like, you know, <laughs> building meaning, uh, meaningful narratives as opposed to just tearing stuff apart. I, right now, I, I have okay. So there's a way that I can kind of lay this out for the the whole uh, capital T traditionalism thing. The best way, in my opinion, to think about what is meant by capital T traditionalism is think about it in a Platonic context, right? So you've got tradition, the primordial tradition that is the form of tradition, and then all the traditions, little t, we see in the world are basically imperfect manifestations of the form of the primordial tradition, right? So it's it exists in the realm of ideas, it's perfect, and we have imperfect reflections of it, um, you know, because they're expressed in the contingent, uh, or uh, codependently arisen realm, in the physical realm, right? That's, to me, a really easy way to think about what they mean by primordial tradition and the reflections of it in the world. That's really good, that's accurate. And, and actually, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, real quick. Um, instant, also, uh, pretty funny that Evola actually was a Buddhist for a, a part of his life because he recognized that uh, different schools of Buddhism sort of have the best technology, best practice or whatever for leading people to their own personal recognition of what that primordial tradition is. He understood, you know, because it's never the effort to try and like say it in words and nail it down is just from the get go in Buddhism considered to be not nearly as good or as a stepping stone to the actual real uh, phenomenological reality of that primordial tradition. So he was a Buddhist for a while, which is interesting. Because I, I mean, the Evola definitely had more fondness for Buddhism than pretty much any of the other traditional uh, religions, though I was never under... I, I mean, I once made the joke that basically being an Evolian is like the right-wing equivalent of spiritual but not religious, because he kind of just dabbled in all of the traditional religions without really ever committing to one. Sort of the odd man out among the perennial traditionalists, like Ganon was a Sufi, as was mentioned, Kumar Swami was a Hindu, but Evola was just sort of this guy who dabbled in all of them at, in some way. Now, you know, you mentioned the reign of quantity, but if anyone is not inclined to read the whole thing, there's this one very brief uh, text, which I, I almost summarizes that entire principle. Um, it's this chapter about money. And Ganon describes how in the beginning, you know, you had money was essentially just gold. You cut it in, a, in some amount, and that was actually money. Then you have coins of gold, and then you go from coinage of gold to these pieces of paper that represent some amount of gold. And then from there to just paper that doesn't represent gold at all. And he predicts that in the future, money might just consist of lists. Well, nowadays, I mean, the majority of money in the world basically are digits on a computer screen in some bank somewhere, which I think captures this, this, this quantity over quality that's been defining this degeneration for, over the course of the last couple thousand years. Evel is kind of interesting because he captures the same dynamic with this idea of involution, which he identifies with the various, um, basically like you go from this original golden age of monarchies that are like completely connected to the transcendent or the divine or whatever you want to call it, 
And from there towards the sort of pale imitation, which is like this kind of monarchy, which is says claims the divine right of kings, but really isn't. And from there to this, this, this current age we're in right now, which is the age of the merchant and bourgeoisie, which rules over these democracies with the power of money. And he predicts from there, we're going to get into this age of the worker where there's like absolutely no distinction, no differentiation, which he saw represented in the Soviet Union. Um, and that's, it's, it's kind of an interesting interpretation of history because it plays almost with the idea of classes and the ages of, of gold, silver, and iron. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we uh, <laughs> maybe do another, maybe do a cross. Yeah, revolt is or... revolt is a. I mean, some of this uh, stuff seems to go back to revolt, but that's I think a whole another worth worth maybe a whole another episode. Yeah. So his most um, the book that I think gets the most play in um, like dissident circles and stuff is um, Ride the Tiger, mm. um, because it's a very uh, it's subtitled the. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, a manual for the aristocrats of the soul. What is it? Yeah, it's like, like yeah, it's like a survival manual for aristocrats of the soul. I think right, the, which uh, is such which is such a like a a bold and almost pretentious way to phrase it that it's it's almost irresistible. You're like, well, I'm an aristocrat of the soul, so I'm going to read that, you know. And I actually love that about Evola. He he just comes right out and says he says stuff like that. Um, and that book is sort of. It, there's quite there's some lengthy asides in there, which to me almost don't even fit in the book. But the core of the book is is basically if you feel a yearning for these kinds of things um, and yet you find yourself living in this current situation that we live in, what it, what is one to do? Um, uh, how can you navigate this world and maintain some sort of um, connection to the noble connection to the divine or whatever when you know we're living in clown world and um i think that's sort of the book that that appeals to people the most it's also relatively accessible it's not a long dissertation on buddhism or the holy grail or whatever it's it's more of a sort of a direct speaking um to people and i actually i wanted to read one quote to you guys and it's not by evola or Kenon. it's by fritjof shuan and if I could just pull up my darn screen here. Um, actually, let me let me come back to Oh, here it is. Here it is. Sorry. Uh, so Shuan said, um, when because he gets they get accused of sort of like living with their heads in the clouds, or Evola especially gets accused of being sort of faking this belief and this and this is this is again, and this is sort of what you're talking about, Dharma Kirti. Like there's this sense in which they 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 almost laugh at it out of hand, right? Like the very fact that you're claiming that there's some sort of something that's better than what we see is, is like a priori considered uh, impossible. And, and you're immediately su suspected of, of, yeah, I don't know. I, of I, again, I have more thoughts. False on that, grandiosity. I, I, I have more thoughts on this, but before I get, why, why don't you continue? Yeah. So here's the quote. So here's the quote. So Shuan said, um, you know, people want to, claim that traditionalism um, is just a, a nostalgia for the past. He said that that's justifiable. And his quote is, traditionalism, like esotericism, has nothing pejorative about it in itself. If to recognize what, tr what is true and just is just nostalgia for the past, then it is quite clearly a crime or a disgrace not to feel this nostalgia. 
right? So like you can call, you can call it nostalgia if you want, right? But then, then fine, I'm nostalgic because I want what's true and what's just. Well, I mean, it's it's heretical to the religion of progress, and you can you yeah. can style that as social progress as progressives, or you can style that as technological progress. I mean, the the basic one of the basic truths of the unspoken and unrecognized modern religion of progress is that it's always better. Whatever is next is better all the time inherently because we're progressing his, you know, uh, we're at the, the end of history, so to speak. Right. That's well, you know, but notice that that was one of the things I wanted to say is like, okay, so this is obviously parasitical upon Christian ideas. Sorry. We, uh, were you done? I thought you, I didn't mean to interrupt. Um, I'll, I'll just finish with me? a storm. I, 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 uh, oh, no, that's all I was saying. Oh, okay. So it's parasitical upon the Christian because like the end of history is a Christian theological concept. It is not a Buddhist concept and it's not a concept that you really find outside of those um, circles. But in a Christian context, it's not that like it, it, it's not even that things get better until the end when then they get the best and then everything's it's things get worse until there's like a crisis an antichrist and and things are really, really bad. And then in the darkest moment is when Jesus comes back and then we get the end of history. So it, this I don't know where this myth of progress is coming from. I, I, I have my suspicions. I mean, I have I mean, it's clearly I mean, I, I, I'm, in, I'm inclined more and more to see satanic demonic influence um, lurking in the shadows, guiding the, the intellectual and psychological uh, processes that are creating the insanity we see around us every day. But, um, yeah, I just want to emphasize, like, this idea of, you know, when we were pro pro progressing towards some utopia, like, that's not even... I mean, it's, it's, it's derived in some perverted sense from Christianity, but it is not a Christian notion. Um, and, of course, in, in, a, in an Indian, in Indic or Indo-Aryan, as he said, I like, I, I want, I, total, again, another side note on a side note, I love Indo-Aryan, and we need to bring this term back. But uh, from an Indo-Aryan perspective, the uh, history degrades, right? Like what we're what we're in now is the Kali Yuga, and and we're you know things progressively get worse, and maybe they'll start getting better in you know in either in the next universe cycle or within this you know cycle of a cycle within this universe. But um, the point is that this idea that we're per that, that things are getting better. First of all, it's just belied by the senses. Like, you don't need some elaborate theory of history to look around you and see women with penises and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, and be like, oh, yeah, this is great. Everything's getting so much better. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it. it uh, let me go out on a limb here for a second, and let's just assume more of a bit of a conspiratorial mindset just because... I'm all the, about it. <laughs> go on. Part, part of this is just because the images are striking, but I personally see a lot of kind of like satanic uh, subtext to the way the elites do stuff. I mean, Satan, right? He's Lord of this world. It's, it's the exalted power of man approaching Godhood. Like to me, all these claims about singularities and end of history and um, techno utopia are, are kind of just blatantly satanic. You know, you have, because the, the development of nature is it progresses, progresses through what you'd call like evolution or development or whatever. That's, natural and sort of sacred and represented by like the peak of it would be something like the image of the garden of Eden. Right. And um, then there's also, you know, the fact that a lot of the elites attend like weird satanic parties where they drink, come and cut themselves and shit. And the blatant satanic imagery that's all over like award shows and, you know, um, 
e-girl witches and stuff that actually don't know what the fuck they're talking about with any of that occult stuff are really popular now. And to me, personally, me, if you take a, a view where you're saying, okay, I agree that essentially the progress of time, the Hindus, Indians were right about it, the Indo-Aryans were right about it, and that it's a process of degrading from the golden age, then that also pegs technological and quote-unquote social progress as inherently uh, bad, destructive, degenerate, etc. Well, this is, a, this is a thing. I know it's a Shaiva idea to some extent, and I believe it's also just a kind of generic um, Vedanta idea, is that basically like physicality, materiality is uh gross it, gross in this I, mean, I guess gross also in the sense of disgusting but also gross and like not subtle like it's the pure reality is um very refined ethereal not material and then it's only through a progressive process of becoming more and more coarse gross unrefined physical that and that's where the that's the fall that's the fall essentially in that kind of a worldview um, this isn't 100% Buddhist, but I mean, I think there is that kind of underlies to some extent some of the Buddhist way of thinking about these type, these types of things is, you know, I mean, there was like, you know, on the one hand, samsara was be is beginningless and endless and definitely it is. But on the other hand, it's like, OK, it, it, you know, it's not that escaping materiality is going to solve your problems in the sense of like if you're born as a god, you're still subject to karma. But you know the the original enlightenment originary let's say enlightenment beyond you know never that was never unenlightened um you know that is not physical that's not bound by any kind of temporal or causal process and and so yeah i mean i i think there's i think i, th I don't think you can just dismiss that perspective out of hand at all um and and so when you're talking about technology what you're talking about Fundamentally, I think, and this kind of again from this kind of a perspective, is what you're talking about is using material ends, using physical causal processes to attempt to like get you back at that thing that was never technological to begin with, and so of course it's always going to fail. Of course it's always going to blow up on itself, blow up in your face. You know, the the condition of the possibility of it working it was never in place because in order for it to be able to work, it could only ever end up blowing up in your face, which is what we're experiencing now. Well, technology, if you think about it, is actually the justification for the entire progress narrative to begin with. The mastery of technics and the yeah. ability to produce more things and this, the greater understanding, of, I mean, like, whenever you're trying to criticize the progress narrative, the most basic shit-tier critique is, well, back then in the Middle Ages, people died at 50. This is this is what they always point to, and it's it, so technology then becomes which the isn't base. even true actually. I mean, there was like no. the 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 average birth rate thing is such a it's such. I mean, it's true that what it was was there was a lot of infant mortality, and then so that drove like median death down, median median uh, life expectancy down. But people lived long lives. It was just there was a lot of infant and child mortality. Sorry, go on. It's like I mean, wanting wanting to live like a million years to a million years old in a shitty fucking hellscape is just another example of quantity over quality yeah you know if you, if you calculated the the uh, modern expected life uh uh today in america and and count counted abortions in it ours oh, probably isn't oh, that great either oh my god that's a so, horrifying infant, infant mortality is uh, horrifying and excellent point yes and yeah. i would also say here that the the manifested gross utopia that's sought by like techno utopians and and social progressives wanting you know like you know 
um, utopian full automated gay luxury communism and all that. It, what, what this is, is that actually comes into being in your own mind when you attain enlightenment. The, the, <laughs> there is I, the idea of material itself right. is literally, it's one of the most practical ideas for doing stuff in your life, but it's also no, not literally the most practical, sorry, to inter but it's literally the most practical possible goal out of any possible goal you could ever have. You know, if you want to get happy or you want to get rich or you want to get like, well, all these things are instrumental towards accomplishing like that goal. There is no, other real goal that that's gonna like like that's the ultimate goal that's the whole point sorry yeah, I, right what else what else is technology if you say like well we have this technology we have medical technology well why well because um i, I you know i want to live longer well why because you know life is good and i and dying sucks yeah it sure does but you know however long that's the other thing about this singularity to go off on a bit of a rant but like do you think that like you're gonna be immune? Okay, so you you upload yourself into the machine. Con I mean, that's not even that's even possible. It's ridiculous. But let's say let's say for the sake of argument, you got you're you're in the cloud now. Okay, so four billion years from now or whatever, when when the sun expands into the Earth, like so, what's gonna happen to the cloud? It's like oh well, maybe I'm gonna be in you know some other cloud in some other planet. Okay, well when the universe experiences heat death or some other form of like you know, there's no there's no scenario here where the universe like is immune. We're we're not immune from entropy, right? So like yeah, just remember just remember that uh, religious practitioners are the crazy ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're we're the nuts ones, but you're gonna upload yourself into the cloud that's gonna exist on Jupiter or some other you know so distributed across like our solar system and many other solar systems, and uh, uh, you know the the uh, yeah I mean it's just it's just it's just ridiculous. So we we got a little um, snippy. Sorry, question. this is yeah. This is my fault. <laughs> what? No, go ahead. What what was your fault? Uh, I feel that I tend to derail. Um, no, no, it's fine. We got. I mean, it's fine. We got a snippy question in the chat saying, "Are we are we talking about the doctrine of awakening yet?" I, I mean, you know, I, and I think I think in a sense we are. I, I think it's all, but it's, it would be maybe good to return to the text somewhat. Um, one um, one thing that I did think that like maybe like to to frame this discussion again. This I I anticipate at least one more episode on this, and may, and maybe two, or or we'll see because I, I, you know obviously it's a very rich text and. And there's a lot going on and, and a lot to discuss. Um, part of part of why this I found this so interesting, and I think it's something that we're st I, I'm still trying to figure out for myself, and I think we as a movement are still trying to figure out is like what what exactly does it even mean to be right wing? Um, obviously, there's a kind of particular history there in terms of the French Revolution and the tennis court oath and this whole this whole thing. I mean, that's where like the physical thing comes from in terms of you know the royalists and the clergy were on the right and the Essentially, the utopian socialists and the egalitarians were on the left, and and that's where that um, emerges from. But to me, like, I, one thing that I think is absolutely necessary is a sense of um, hierarchy. I, I don't, I, and I, I mean, it, 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 uh, at a first approximation, or one of the ways um, that you can reduce the question, um, and, and maybe this is loading the dice, but I don't really care. Like, I, I really think the the leftist impulse is satanic. And that may mean that it's beyond history or it may just be that our kind, it's a particular kind of satanic or heretical or whatever you want to put it, um, influence that, that or temptation that has manifested in Western European technological society since about the 1700s. Either way, the point is that 
it's the driving desire, or I guess, yeah, I mean, because uh, Milton was was prior to that. But anyway, this this desire of of man to become God, or you know, or or to be like God, to 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 for for you know, Lucifer being unhappy with his station as a mere creature and wanting to you know, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. This this impulse, this Luciferian satanic impulse, I really see as like as as defining the left as i understand it and so the what is the answer to that or what is the correct approach to that is to understand our own um self our own place in the cosmos and what was in i think this is something that evolo strikes on and he's absolutely absolutely right and he, he basically because he in, in his discussion of dependent origination and in uh, this foundational buddhist uh concept or or teaching of that there are that there's a process of development that we didn't just like arrive here one day randomly that there's a causal process that originates in things that have been going on for eons and eons beginninglessly and that it's our own desires and it's our own karma it's our own actions it's our own intentions that led us to take birth how and where we do and there's a kind of tension within the buddhist tradition um sorry i know i'm i'm talking a lot but i i just want to like uh explain it's good man keep going it's very good to our audience um so in in mahayana buddhism in particular although i think this is also a pre-mahayana teaching there's this it's called gotra or or um like lineage or um group or it's not exactly caste, but you can almost kind of think of it that way which is basically that there are different beings have different spiritual capacities and not all beings have the same spiritual not all human beings have i mean human beings are special human beings are kind of uniquely positioned within the multiverse to be able to attain enlightenment from within having taken birth as a human being but not all human beings are born the same. And in fact, and, and he, he picks up on, again, he, like very well read, knows exactly what he's talking about. And he mentions, you know, yeah, like there's there's some interplay between the warrior caste and the priestly caste in terms of like who's kind of better positioned to attain enlightenment or, or to advance along the spiritual path. But that, you know, that being born as an aristocrat or being born as someone who's going to be going to a monastic university or, or who has some kind of advantage um, in this life is at some level like both evidence of a kind of spiritual attainment in a past life and um, just objectively a better circumstance from which to advance in the present life. Um, now, this can be taken too far. And I think, you know, he from a kind of what, you know, my kind of, you know, my doctrinal commitments are as a Mahayana Buddhist. Uh, so, you know, and, and from the Mahayana, there's like this really important text called the um Ratnagotra Vibhaga or the Uttara Tantra Shastra which is this which is this uh, one of the text five treatises of Maitreya um that was taught by the future Buddha Maitreya to Asanga and in this text you know it's, it very clearly lays out because there was this question at the time about 2000 years ago in the Buddhist tradition like it was taught that there are basically five different types or classes of beings five gotras and and one gotra was the you know the 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 for the beings that were headed towards buddhahood full and complete and perfect buddhahood another gotra was i don't remember all the ones but basically like for the pratyeka buddhas you know for people who are going to be who are going to attain enlightenment that's going to take them longer and they're going to do it without a teacher and then there's what's called the no gotra they're the the lack of gotra um meaning that basically these are people that are kind of fucked 
And um, there's various interpretations of this, and 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 it 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 has an interesting kind of parallel with the Christian concept of hell, in that it's not where, where people kind of end up on this is that it's it's not necessarily the case that. Um, in other words, the doors are locked from the inside. That that these are people who are just never going to get it. But 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 this ends up getting interpreted as it's just going to take them a very 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 long time. But the point is again that like it's unclear to me whether Evola himself is. I mean, it seems like he's endorsing this idea that there are just beings who are in the no gotra, you know, category that they're just never going to be on the path really. And and there were certainly Buddhists two thousand years ago that would have agreed with him. That's ultimately the Mahayana tradition. Um, decided to that 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 we sort of converged into the conclusion that for kind of essentially philosophical ontological reasons that that it does it can't really work that way, um, but it can certainly take it can certainly take some beings a lot longer than others, and in particular when we're regarding like human beings that are born in this life, it's you want to be born into a good family, and this becomes like in the Indian literature a real a, a repeated kind of stock phrase like I, I probably in the poly literature too like oh child of a good family oh child of a good family you know like that, that there's something about being born in a good family in good circumstances you know well fed well taken care of well educated you know wealthy enough to be able to to in, engage in these activities um wealthy enough to support these activities um you know financially and so on that like of course you want that and of course you should like sort of treat people in those circumstances with a certain amount of deference um i'm, I'm probably i think i'm done but that i think that's just important it, it was interesting to see that really coming out in in his uh, analysis of buddhism and you know i actually think that that might be partially because what strikes me is that he's really um seems very cold on the mahayana perspective in general yeah, he in calls it he's like ah, mahayana you know they're just like they're into this whole savior thing and that's not really what we're about he didn't yeah, like it. He's definitely endorsing the no gotra idea that there are people who just straight up cannot receive the doctrine of awakening and just they're hopeless. Yeah, that's I mean that's fully heretical from my perspective. That's absolutely uh, just not true. No, I I agree with you. I mean, I, as I said, this is not. I mean, I get why he would say that, but again, from like you know, I and I would argue, I would d defend on kind of philosophical ontological grounds. Actually, the ability to attain enlightenment is built into the nature of the mind of all yes. mind, you know as such and so and i mean we can talk about the reasons why i don't want to necessarily go into it here but like if you have a mind if you are if you are if you are currently experiencing then you can attain enlightenment and if you can be deluded time. you can obtain exactly exactly yeah so there's just, no sorry go on yeah just that some beings have uh, over the course of countless lifetimes accrued so much car karma that would prevent that from occurring and so it would take like you said a very long time to work through all of that sure and and there's no contradiction with that but there would be a contradiction with saying like well you know but they're you know in principle a priori they're just never going to get it and that that's yeah i would say heretical i mean that's a good word to use there that's that's not correct um heterodox maybe i don't even know i mean these categories are christian and they don't necessarily map on very well heretical really just means i'm choosing my own thing doesn't matter um now in, in the tariff yeah just say wrong it's just wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong it's just he's not correct yeah <laughs> now is does the Theravada tradition actually endorse that kind of worldview i mean i've heard some things about certain people who are going to basically end up like kind of going through multiple ends of the universe but i've never heard like never capable of attaining enlightenment 
Aura, you you're our resident Terravada guy. Do you have? Do you? <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think this was always kind of like. I mean, again, it was it was a sort of shorthand way of talking um, that that got it, and then and then it was it was useful categories of of thinking, but not. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I don't think I think it's pretty clear that the Buddhist tradition doesn't certainly really certainly in the Thai forest tradition they say if you have a body and you have a mind, then you have everything that you need uh, to attain enlightenment. So, so it's really him trying to twist it to tr- support his worldview that he's talking about in his other works, like Revolt, where he talks about different natures and how there's like some very. Um, I don't know if I could go so far as to say he's twisting it, but he's picking and choosing. Yes, right. Um, he's cherry picking the hell out of it yeah but again for sure but this gets i mean okay so we're not he's not necessarily quote unquote a buddhist and we're not necessarily expecting him to be and we're not necessarily i mean i'm certainly not looking at this text i I guess that's an interesting question like what is this text and what you know it certainly has a value I'm, i'm trying to think about like how to express how i would think about its value but um I think like you got we were talking about this a little bit before but but I want to say I, I think part of what's going a large part of what's going on is you have to understand Evola and and his engagement with Buddhism as on the one hand and, and really in a sense primarily it's a rebuttal against the Schopenhauer and Nietzsche view that Buddhism is passive that Buddhism is just saying like oh everything sucks I'm gonna go into the woods and try to like you know Benedict option my my way out of this or something um and and he was really really you know arguing hard and i think cor- basically correctly against that um and on the other hand there was some some um i think uh, part of all another part of what he was doing was he was responding to christian critiques um coming from a kind of i think misinformed maybe a little less misinformed but still misinformed um this idea you know of of buddhism is uh, i don't even know what necessarily but but he was trying to say like well you know you theists you he had a really great i think i'll read for a second because i think this was a really great um passage it kind of hits on a lot of interesting points he says whatever one may think of it the theistic concept represents an incomplete view of the world since it lacks the extreme hierarchic apex from a metaphysical and, in the higher sense, traditional point of view, the notion on which theism is based of representing a being in a personal form, even when theologically sublimated, can never claim to be the ultimate ideal. The concept and the realization of the extreme apex, or, in other words, of that which is beyond both such a being and its opposite non-being, was and is natural to the Aryan spirit. It does not deny the theistic point of view, but recognizes it in its rightful hierarchic place and subordinates it to a truly transcendental concept. Um, and there, I, I just, I mean, I find it hard ultimately to really disagree with this. Um, it, w- w- what struck out to me was, was you know, reading it was, um, uh, even as a kid, I, I always had this kind of... Uh, intuitive sense that of, of uh, an appreciation for let's say negative theology or, or quote unquote mysticism. Um, and it always, it always struck me that um, the only way to you, I mean that, that this kind of personified God as a personification of being had a certain utility, but it was clearly kind of insufficient. 
and that to the extent that it was God was interpretable or understandable as ultimate truth, that this had to be, you know, could not be reduced to either being or non-being. And so when, you know, when I encountered Nagarjuna in the Buddhist tradition, and it was very explicit about, you know, ultimate My truth. Boy. Yeah, exactly. It was like, well, you know, it's not neither existence nor non-existence nor both nor neither. All of these are just your words that you're imputing on things that what are you even talking about, bro? Um, this, instantly there was a, I was very taken with that. And, and, and it struck me that like, I mean, I don't want, I don't, I don't, I don't ultimately necessarily put that much stock in, in sort of racialized theories about this stuff. I mean, maybe, I mean, Nagarjuna, I guess was probably a Brahmin. So maybe he's, you know, has this Aryan spirit or whatever. I, I don't, I don't know how helpful it is in a certain sense. Not, not because I'm like a cuck or something. I just, I, you know, I think I think I, I want to resist to some extent the temptation to read too much into the kind of like biological side of this, because I do think that, you know, as I said, anyone with a mind like the Dharma is for any being with a mind, period. So it, it's but at the same time, like I, 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 I it was interesting to note that, like, you know, as someone who grew up and, and oh, you know, very with a very clear sense of European identity and steeped in the Western civilizational tradition that that like this particular aspect of like the extreme apex of this mystical knowledge being beyond being and non-being um, kind of instantly took off in my mind. It was always something that I had a very um, visceral attraction to. So I, I just found that interesting. Yeah, I have a lot. Oh, go ahead. Go, go ahead, Storm. Uh, I, I had sort of this experience because, you know, I grew up in the South, um, heavily, heavily uh, casserole and biscuits, Southern Baptists and, uh, the experience I had, because I was just a real dreamy kid and I was an only child, and I spent a lot of time in the woods outside by myself and stuff like that. So it always seemed to me, and this is, I think, you know, the same personality trait that led me to specifically study um, and get into uh, Zen Buddhism, was that there's, uh, there's all, there's, to me, there's always this like, uh, with any experience and in any place, everybody's always got access to this feeling or sensation of sacredness that just sort of pervades everything. And it's really easy to see in nature um, for a lot of people and for me. And like that to me always seemed to be on a higher order of truth than the stuff I was hearing in church. And I have this, you know, I was all, I was always kind of a smart ass. So I was always asked these questions that made everyone uncomfortable in Sunday school and stuff. So yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with Evola's take about uh, theism either because that that to me is if is a natural experience you know i think everybody has some of that does that make sense yeah yeah absolutely but or you you had something to say too yeah in and in, in other places not in this book um evola himself talks about that when he uses the term race uh he's at pains to talk about it. he doesn't really mean a, a one-to-one correlation with bio, biological race and it's actually, for me, a little bit difficult to understand what he does mean by it then, um, because, he, you know, it's like a race of the spirit sort of thing. And I, um, uh, in this book, he's much more just explicit about, like, the Aryan upper castes and everything. Um, but uh, he himself had some subtlety when thinking about these things, Dharmakirti. I would just... Yeah, that, that in, was, I mean, I, I, he he was he clearly wasn't. I mean, he what I think was interesting, and and again, I mean, it's it's uh, evidence of his being very well read and well educated. Is um, you know, because the word Arya, he has a kind of long and very philologically astute 
excursus on the meanings of Arya, which um, refers to a specific people that existed in a specific place and time that, it, you know, in waves invaded the Indian subcontinent and elsewhere. Um, but also in, in part because these people set themselves up as, you know, the, the rulers in the regions that they conquered kind of just means noble. Um, and so, and, and this is, you know, where he sort of, he, he, he I, I think endorses the Buddhist formulation, very famous formulation of like, who's the noble, who's the Arya is the one who behaves well. Who's the, who's the Brahman? Who's the like, again, right. noble like, you know, is the one who, who behaves well. Who is the who is the outcast? Who is the um, what did he call it? Not outcast, or he didn't, he didn't use shudra. He, he used some other word. Anyway, it was also in Italian, so I don't know. But um, uh, is the person who acts like a dipshit, right? Is is right. <laughs> like that? You could be you could be born in a good family, like physically, but if you're selfish and egocentric and um, not just that, but like you know, s- small and mean and of slavish spirit, uh, you are you're garbage you know like you're not you know like like get fucked one thing that he 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 talks about a lot in this book that i just personally find um nice or just good is uh he's at pains to talk about sort of the heroic nature of becoming enlightened Uh, you were again talking about the contrast between the way he looks at buddhism versus uh nietzsche or schopenhauer Right. Instead of like running away from the world and everything, it's like it's like, no, it's like running into, you know, ultimate reality and making this heroic effort um, to, to sort of break through the bound, the binds of, of the material and of the conditioned right into, you know, ultimate liberation. Um, and to me, that's sort of from a right from when I was a teenager, I, I, I found that very I liked that heroic aspect of. Uh, of it and that's always i've always sort of viewed the buddha that way as this well that's like, how yeah, like, i mean that's how it's explicitly themed i mean first of all some of the you know epithets of the buddha are specifically like you know jinnah the conqueror i mean this was like a sort of um because you know jainism in buddhism we don't call jainism jainism because jain comes from the root sanskrit jinnah or g to conquer and we're like no there's one g there's one conqueror and that's the Buddha, that's the Buddha. Uh, so, you know, uh, whatever is Mahavir or whatever, the, the founder of Jainism is not recognized as, quote unquote, a Jinnah in Buddhism because the Buddha, you know, we call the Buddha the conqueror. And uh, in, in the Tibetan tradition also, like, you know, Bodhisattva is one of the kind of like folk etymologies or ways of referring to Bodhisattvas is as literally heroes of enlightenment. And so there's a very much not just a kind of it is part in in, in part martial and uh, part of a kind of military metaphor. But but I mean, it's not just that. It's also, yeah, this this very, you know, again, visceral sense of like uh, a comp like this is very difficult task that, that we that's been set before us. And we need a really heroic effort and dedication um, and, and, and sacrifice in order to achieve it. And there's definitely definitely that is 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 very much part um i think especially the mahayana i I guess i can't say so much for terror i mean i'm I'm, I'm sure it's very similar but this is really explicitly thematized i I would there's yeah there's a there's a very masculine side to that too and uh when 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 it's phrased that way and i i find it very appealing um as a man and um 
you know, it doesn't mean it's not available to women or whatever, but this is just one aspect of the Buddha, of course, there's many, many different aspects, but this heroic side, this idea of breaking through, you know, there's a notion that, um, I think in like pop manosphere stuff that I, I do think is rooted in truth. The idea that men derive a kind of pleasure from, well, this is a Nietzsche too, from, from breaking free, breaking through bonds to, to achieve the goal. I mean, if you watch American football, right, you're, you're trying to, all these guys line up against each other and it's really hard to move the ball three, three yards or whatever. And then if you break through that final line to the end zone, it's like this big, orgasm of release like yes you know i finally scored and that's a very masculine thing and and you can look at the struggle you know the the fight for enlightenment in in similar terms as this sort of you know it's, it's very difficult at times but there are these moments of release uh and then in and then there's a, a final moment of release which is sort of the ultimate achievement it, it is a very again a very heroic way of looking at it so comes no um <laughs> uh this is what people don't understand when they when they balk at, for instance, the Japanese Zen monks being uh, close to the samurai and teaching them and stuff. That's that's what they don't get, is that it's very easy to see this as the, the struggle for enlightenment as a military um, combat style thing, and they don't understand that again because one of the longest held traditions in the West is misunderstanding uh, Eastern wisdom. <laughs> so, you know, that is right there. There's your rationale for why it's like that. You know, it might seem to the average Westerner that this is about like being nice and chilling out and all this fluffy hoo-ha, but it's, it's not like that at all. And I mean, I've, I would say that's because they're deliberately misinterpreting it to justify their pre-existing worldview and give it a spiritual varnish. Right. But you know, it's, it's actually interesting because DK, you said on your curious cat recently that like the horns and the drums in Tibetan Buddhism are actually based around the horns and drums that were used by the Tibetan military back yes. when it was sort of the terror of Central Asia. Yeah. And that's just, I mean, and you know, Evola in this, he's using just examples that are just very clearly martial, like how a person who goes off is, is relying on their, to seek enlightenment is, go, is using their own efforts, like a soldier that's, trying to right. the marching right. army. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, there, there's no. I, I this is again. I mean, the, I, we got some guff for this in the chat. I hope, I hope this is still interesting for people. I don't know. We'll see, but I mean, it doesn't matter. I think I'm, have, I'm enjoying this. And I think it'll be useful in the long run. And, and and there's more to say for sure. We'll keep reading this. But what I, what I was gonna say is, I I I think that one of the reasons why this kind of text is, um so influential in in our thing is again because we th there some kind of weird rot set in at after nuremberg um obviously i mean i don't know how to convince people of that some but, kind <laughs> um but but i'm just saying like it it, it wasn't just it no was, i know i'm being facetious yeah no i know i'm i'm trying to but i'm trying to think of how to phrase this like we lost I don't know that we lost the ability or people were just so done or the people in control didn't want us to or some combination of all of these things. But like, I, I was just trying to think like what really good scholarship, what really good like kind of um, synthetic, you know, in the, in the in the sense of drawing all kinds of things together, uh, scholarship has there been since the end of the Second World War? Like, I guess Charles, Charles I think Charles Taylor's pretty good. Uh, Samuel Huntington thinks in these terms. 
Well, when you when we were talking earlier about the lack of these kinds of uh, you know grand arching themes and everything, what came into my head is that these kinds of things are written now, except for they're written by Malcolm Gladwell. And oh God, no, you know what I mean? That, this but, is, but that's exactly what I'm talking. Well, in a exactly. sense, but he. This is just like this this kind of technocratic scribbling that does it. First of all, it's just gar. I mean, it's like useless. He, he just makes shit up, and and to the extent that it has a use, it's like he's talking about the history of the development of ketchup. Like you know, it it just doesn't. It there's no what is the real kind of impact? What is the real? Um, it, the, and I think we're I think we're exiting this illusion. I think part of the reason why you know I got woke up and pissed off enough to be doing this thing that we're doing right here and now is precisely because, you know, I've always kind of had this sense and, um, for a while and, you know, I was in my kind of, you know, uh, late teens and early twenties, I was to, was to some extent resigned to, um, this idea that this was just how it was going to be before, you know, really thinking about it some more and being like, you know what? Fuck that. <laughs> we're not doing this. And, uh, but the point is that you like we are in stuck or have been stuck and we're starting to like leave you know we're leaving that rut where this is the the first groans of the the vehicle leaving the rut um of of thinking in genuinely helpful and and helpful ways rather than merely te technocratic merely kind of you know filling in little details in this structure that's been provided for us these narrow little straight jacket since 1945 um and and so i yeah i don't i don't know i guess i'm, I'm just kind of rambling i don't know if i have a, a really clear point that i'm trying to make um but i i just think it's really important i just think it's it, it's it's necessary for us to to return i guess that's what i was trying to get at is we need all of us anyone listening to this any you know us here me myself um we really i think it's very important for us to to see that the foundations of clown world are to a large extent contained in that in those intellectual straitjackets that we've been put in and that and that this evolian project um because again, I mean, like he's not. It's not that he's like wrong about everything. He is kind of, I think, going off in some directions that are um, idiosyncratic and 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 maybe not, you know, ultimately going to get him where he wants to go or where get us where we want to go. But then he has the daring, that he has the balls to read all this stuff and sit there and then think about it and then write this book and 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 think and and say like look here's what we can do you know we, we we don't have to remain like on the one hand bound by just sort of like thinking you know like memorizing long lists of sanskrit words on the other uh on, on on the one hand and then on the other hand you know just to sort of uh uh we we, we can we can appropriate this we can do things with it we can be active we can we can you know apply this to our situation and and we don't have to remain bound by these strictures of thought that we've inherited, um, particularly when they're damaging us. And and I think that's that's why I'm doing what I, I mean. That I, I I really I find that very inspiring. I do too. And the the Buddha himself is an example of 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 that. You know, finding yourself in in a situation where it's not things aren't satisfactory and being like, all right, well, I guess this is up to me. You know. <laughs> You know, and one of the reasons, I, I think one of the most important reasons I like to be in this whole right-wing Dharma Squad's project is just saving Buddhism from the shitlib misreadings and 19th century 
uh, misinterpretations and this idea that Buddhism is like some kind of Protestant reaction to Brahmanism and it's this egalitarian democratic system that endorses your current 21st century worldview of feminism and God only knows what else. And it's to save it from that and to bring it back. And this whole doctrine of awakening, it has its flaws. I don't think any outsider is ever going to fully understand Buddhism perfectly. But despite that, I can say this is it, it's a fantastic starting point for anyone who does want to actually understand the real essence of Buddhism and to save yourself from like these. You can certainly do a lot yeah. worse. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you look at one of these. It's like, a good point of entry. That's what I'm going to yeah, say. About. Like, like if you look at these fucking like, you know, uh, Jewish feminists uh, <laughs> calling themselves Zen teachers talking oh, about God. like how enlightenment is a male power fantasy it's like well she's not wrong at a certain <laughs> level you know what i mean like i guess you're not wrong lady you know like uh, uh but maybe you should you know maybe you should take that a little more seriously maybe she's wrong yeah oh no she's completely right she's just wrong in assuming that's yeah, a bad thing. exactly so you know and and that's what you know evola's get yeah i mean i i I don't want to go. I, I I saw this. This is why I was talking about it this way. I see I see this as sort of more laying the groundwork and thinking about you know sort of what what is Evola doing? Why is he doing it? Why are we reading it? What are we hoping to get out of it? What are we not? What do we understand that we are not going to be able to get out of it? Right. Um, and the next week maybe we can dig into more um, some of the particular content and particular ideas that he has. I and mean, there's definitely a lot a lot there. Um, uh, I don't know how that sounds to you guys. That I think that's great. Okay, cool. Yeah, We're, that would give me time to actually um, yeah. <laughs> get further get further through it, you know. Me too. Do you have any but do you have any uh, closing thoughts or things you want to say or or you know, stuff uh anything we've talked about that you wanted to return to before we before we go? Uh I don't. I have something but not related to the text, so you guys can go and if you don't have anything, I'll uh, I'll say my piece. I I uh, I don't have anything to add. And I had already said what I wanted to say earlier. It's... Yeah, I wanted to, just on that note. I I think um, again, just to reiterate, because it's something, and, and, and maybe I'm just thinking out loud, but that's okay. The, it the 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 essence of leftism is this kind of mindless egalitarian. Really, what it what it consists in, I think I'm, I'm sort of zeroing in on is it is the obliteration of any and all distinctions. Not in the sense of like what I would call, you know, because, you know, um, enlightenment, there are no distinctions or differentiations within the ultimate enlightened mind. But that's not what they're talking. They're, they're talking about it in like if the ultimate enlightened mind in the way that um, that I mentioned before is precisely it's beyond the physical and the non-physical and it cannot be expressed in thought or language. And it's it, it is in a certain very important way immaterial. They're not just talking about. They're not talking about that. Part of what they're talking about is just saying, no, we're going to obliterate like physical, biological distinctions, and which is to say, really, the cash value of that, of course, is to pretend that they don't exist. Um, so the hierarchical aspect here is, I think, there's no way around it. There's no way around recognizing, and, and again, this gets about what we, what I was saying and what we were talking about a little bit last week too, with with the in terms of sainthood. This is why I think um, one way that you can reduce, you know, one way to like, you know, sort of zero in and say, okay, well, what is the essence of of what's going on with our movement, as I see it at least, is precisely that we are willing to say some beings are objectively, in in ultimate terms, more spiritually advanced, essentially, essentially better people 
than we are that deserve our respect that you know they're never not necessarily going to force us but that deserve our support that deserve our that deserve our our service and our and our subordination um and that we need to submit our will to them so that we can perfect our own beings and 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 become more like them which is the point and and that I think it's it's the resentment, the yeah, Nietzschean kind of ressentiment of specifically that um, this sense of like, well, who the hell are you to tell me what to do? Who the hell are you that you think you're better than me? It's like, no, I don't think I'm better than you. I know that I'm better than you, or and you should if you were if your mind were working properly, you would know that I was better than you. And and the fact that you have this resent there's all this ego shit going on that, that you think you're my equal is why you are so miserable all the time. fantastic way to put it so and i think i think that's again i mean i, I you know that, that that's what uh as i understood it what evil love was um that's again what i got out of it and i think that's it seems that the evil and, and i <laughs> so to speak are on the same page in that regard okay um that's my closing thought storm did you have anything else for for now or do you want to yeah i'm gonna read uh before we go cool. i'm gonna read an excerpt from the uh, record of yunmen who was the uh, a Zen master, very famous at the end of the golden age of Chan in uh, China. Um, a monk asked Master Zhao Zhao, how is it when a man brings nothing with him? Zhao Zhao replied, throw it away. The monk said further, since I have nothing with me, what could I throw away? Master Zhao Zhao said, well, then I guess you should go on carrying it. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Storm. Thank you, Kagyu and Aura. Thank you, everyone who's participated. Thank you, uh, everyone in the chat and all our listeners. If you have any other questions or anything else, please feel free to contact one of us. Otherwise, we will be back next week with part two. Thank you so much again and goodbye.